my friends. In 1 Corinthians 13, 11, Paul says, When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. When our Lord was going to leave the world and return to his Father, he called his disciples orphans, children, as it were, whom he had been rearing, who were still unable to direct themselves and who would soon lose their protector. But, he said, I will not leave you comfortless, orphans. I will come to you. Meaning to say, he would come again to them in the power of his Holy Spirit, who should be their present all-sufficient guide, though he himself was away. And we know from sacred history that when the Holy Spirit came, they ceased to be the defenseless children they had been before. He breathed into them a divine life and gifted them with spiritual manhood, or perfection, as it is called in Scripture. From that time forth, they put away childish things. They spoke, they understood, they thought as those who had been taught to govern themselves and who, having an unction from the Holy One, knew all things. That such a change was wrought in the apostles according to Christ's promise is evident from comparing their conduct before the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit descended on them and after. I need not enlarge on their wonderful firmness and zeal in their master's cause afterwards. On the other hand, it is plain from the Gospels that before the Holy Ghost came down, that is, while Christ was still with them, they were as helpless and ignorant as children. They had no clear notion what they ought to seek after or how they ought to seek after it. They were carried astray by their accidental feelings and their long-cherished prejudices. What was it but to act the child, to ask how many times a fellow Christian should offend against us and we forgive him, as St. Peter did? Or to ask to see the Father with St. Philip? Or to propose to build tabernacles on the mount as if they were not to return to the troubles of the world? Or to dispute who should be the greatest, or to look for Christ's restoring at that time the temporal kingdom to Israel. Natural as such views were, in the case of half-instructed Jews, they were evidently unworthy of those whom Christ had made his, that he might present them perfect before the throne of God. Yet the first disciples of Christ, at least, put off their vanities once for all when the Spirit came upon them. But as to ourselves, the Spirit has long since been poured upon us, even from our earliest years, yet it's a serious question whether multitudes of us, even those among us who make a profession of religion, are even so far advanced in knowledge of the truth as the apostles were before the day of Pentecost. It may be a profitable employment today 
to consider this question as suggested by the text. To inquire how far we have proceeded in putting off such childish things as are inconsistent with a manly, honest profession of the gospel. Now, I'm not inquiring whether we are plainly living in sin, in willful disobedience, nor even whether we are yielding through thoughtlessness to sinful practices and habits. The condition of those who act against their conscience or who act without conscience, that is, lightly and carelessly, is far indeed from bearing any resemblance to that of the apostles in the years of their early discipleship. I am supposing you, my brethren, to be on the whole followers of Christ, to profess to obey him, and I address you as those who seem to themselves to have a fair hope of salvation. I am directing your attention not to your sins, not to those faults and failings which you know to be such and are trying to conquer as being confessedly evil in themselves, but to such of your views, wishes, and tastes as resemble those which the apostles cherished, true believers though they were, before they attained their manhood in the gospel. And I ask how far you have dismissed these from your minds as vain and trifling. That is how far you have made what St. Paul in the text seems to consider the first step in the true spiritual course of a Christian on whom the Holy Ghost has descended. For example, let us consider our love of the pleasures of life. I am willing to allow there's an innocent love of the world, innocent in itself. God made the world and has sanctioned the general form of human society and has given us abundant pleasures in it. I do not say lasting pleasures, but still while they're present, really pleasures. It is natural that the young should look with hope to the prospect before them. They cannot help forming schemes what they will do when they come into active life or what they would wish to be if they had their choice. They indulge themselves in fancyings about the future, which they know at the time cannot come true. At other times, they confine themselves to what is possible, and their hearts burn when they dream of quiet happiness, domestic comfort, independence. Or with bolder views, they push forward their fortunes into public life and indulge ambitious hopes. They fancy themselves rising in the world, distinguished, courted, admired, securing influence over others and rewarded with high station. James and John had such a dream when they besought Christ that they might sit at his side in the most honorable places in his kingdom. Now, such dreams can hardly be called sinful in themselves and without reference to the particular case. For the gifts of wealth, power, and influence, and much more of domestic comfort, come from God, and they may be religiously improved. But though not directly censurable, they are childish. Childish either in themselves or at least when cherished and indulged. Childish in a Christian who has infinitely higher views to engross his mind, and as being childish, excusable only in the young. 
they're an offense when retained as life goes on. But in the young, we may regard them after the pattern of our Savior's judgment upon the young man who was rich and noble. He is said to have loved him, pitying, that is, and not harshly denouncing the anticipations which had formed of happiness from wealth and power, yet withal not concealing from him the sacrifice of all these which he must make if he would be perfect, that is, a man and not a mere child of the gospel. But there are other childish views and habits besides which must be put off while we take on ourselves the full profession of a Christian. And these, not so free from intrinsic guilt as those which have already been noticed, such as the love of display, greediness of the world's praise, and the love of the comforts and luxuries of life. These, though wrong tempers of mind, still I do not now call by their hardest names, because I would lead persons, if I could, rather to turn away from them as unworthy to a Christian with a sort of contempt, outgrowing them as they grow in grace and laying them aside as a matter of course while they are still gradually learning to set their affections on things above, not on things of the earth. Children have evil tempers and idle ways which we do not deign to speak seriously of. Not that we in any degree approve them or endure them on their own account. No, we punish some of them. But we bear them in children and look for their disappearing as the mind becomes more mature. And so, in religious matters, there are many habits and views which we bear with in the unformed Christian, but which we account disgraceful and contemptible should they survive that time when a man's character may be supposed to be settled. Love of display is one of these. Whether we are vain of our abilities or our acquirements or our wealth or our personal appearance, whether we discover our weakness in talking much or in love of managing or, again, in love of dress, vanity indeed and conceit are always disagreeable for the reason that they interfere with the comfort of other persons and vex them. But I am here observing that they are in themselves odious when discerned in those who enjoy the full privileges of the church and are by profession men in Christ Jesus, odious from their inconsistency with Christian faith and earnestness. And so, with respect to the love of worldly comforts and luxuries, which unhappily often grows upon us rather than disappears as we get old, whether or not it be natural in youth, at least it is, if I may say so, shocking in those who profess to be perfect, if we would estimate things right. And this from its great incongruity with the spirit of the gospel. Is it not something beyond measure strange and monstrous, if we could train our hearts to possess a right judgment in all things, to profess that our treasure is not here but in heaven with him who has ascended there, and to own that we have a cross to bear after him, who first suffered before he triumphed, and yet to set ourselves deliberately to study our own comfort as some great and sufficient end, to go much out of our way to promote it, 
to sacrifice anything considerable to guard it and to be downcast at the prospect of the loss of it. Is it possible for a true son of the church militant, while the ark and Israel and Judah abide in tents, and the servants of the Lord are encamped in an open field to eat and drink securely, to wrap himself in the furniture of wealth, to feed his eyes with the pride of life, and complete for himself the measure of this world's elegancies. Again, all timidity, irresolution, fear of ridicule, weakness of purpose, such as the apostles showed when they deserted Christ, and Peter especially when he denied him, are to be numbered among the tempers of mind which are childish as well as sinful which we must learn to despise, to be ashamed at ourselves if we are influenced by them, and instead of thinking the conquest of them a great thing, to account it as one of the very first steps towards being but an ordinary true believer. Just as the apostles, in spite of their former discipleship, only commenced surely to their Christian course at the day of Pentecost, and then took to themselves a good measure of faith, boldness, zeal, and self-mastery, not as some great proficiency and as a boast, but as the very condition of their being Christians at all, as the elements of spiritual life, as a mere outfitting, and a small attainment indeed in that extended course of sanctification through which the Blessed Spirit is willing to lead every Christian. Now in this last remark, I have given a chief reason for dwelling on the subject before us. It is very common for Christians to make much of what are but petty services. First, to place the very substance of religious obedience in a few meager observances or particular moral precepts which are easily complied with, and which they think fit to call giving up the world, and then to make a great vaunting about their having done what in truth everyone who is not a mere child in Christ ought to be able to do to congratulate themselves upon their success ostentatiously, to return thanks for it, to condemn others who do not happen to move exactly along the very same line of minute practices in detail which they have adopted, and in consequence, to forget that after all, by such poor obedience, right though it be, still they have not approached even to a distant view of that point in their Christian course at which they may consider themselves, in St. Paul's words, to have attained a sure hope of salvation. Just as little children, when they first have strength to move their limbs, triumph in every exertion of their newly acquired power as in some great victory. To put off idle hopes of earthly good, to be sick of flattery in the world's praise, to see the emptiness of temporal greatness, and to be watchful against self-indulgence, these are but the beginnings of religion. These are but the preparation of the heart, which religious earnestness implies. Without a good share of them, how can a Christian move a step? How could Abraham, when called of God, have even set out from his native place unless he had left off to think much of this world and cared not for its ridicule? Surely these attainments are but our first manly robe showing that childhood is gone. And if we feel the love and fear of the world still active within our hearts, 
deeply must we be humbled. Yes, and alarmed. And humbled, even though but the traces remain of our former weakness. But even if otherwise, what thank do we have? See what the apostles were, by way of contrast, and then you will see what is the true life of the Spirit, the substance and the full fruit of holiness. To love our brethren with a resolution which no obstacles can overcome, so as almost to consent to an anathema on ourselves, if so be, we may save those who hate us, to labor in God's cause against hope and in the midst of sufferings, to read the events of life as they occur by the interpretation which Scripture gives them, and that not as if the language were strange to us, but to do it promptly, to perform all our relative daily duties most watchfully, to check every evil thought and bring the whole mind into captivity to the law of Christ, to be patient, cheerful, forgiving, meek, honest, true, to persevere in this good work till death, making fresh and fresh advances towards perfection, and after all, even to the end, to confess ourselves unprofitable servants, to feel ourselves corrupt, and sinful creatures who, with all our proficiency, would still be lost unless God bestowed on us his mercy in Christ. These are some of the difficult realities of religious obedience which we must pursue and which the apostles in high measure attained and which we may well bless God's holy name if he enables us to make our own. Let us then take it for granted as a truth which cannot be gainsaid that to break with the world and make religion our first concern is only to cease to be children. And again, that in consequence, those Christians who have come to mature years and yet do not even so much as this are in the presence of the angels of God an odious and unnatural spectacle, a mockery of Christianity. I do not say what such men are in God's sight, and what their prospects are for the next world. For that is a fearful thought, and we ought to be influenced by motives far higher than that mere slavish dread of future punishment to which such a consideration would lead us. But here someone may ask whether I'm not speaking severely in urging so many sacrifices at the beginning of true Christian obedience. In conclusion, then, I observe in the first place that I have not said a word against the moderate and thankful enjoyment of this life's goods when they actually come our way, but against the wishing earnestly for them, seeking them and preferring them to God's righteousness, which is commonly done. Further, I'm not excluding from the company of Christians all who cannot at once make up their minds thus vigorously to reject the world when its goods are dangerous, inexpedient, and unsuitable but excluding them from the company of mature, manly Christians. Doubtless our Lord deals gently with us. He has put his two sacraments apart from each other. Baptism first admits us to his favor. His Holy Supper brings us among his perfect ones. He has put from 14 to 20 years between them in the ordinary course of things, that we may have time to count the cost and make our decision 
calmly. Only there must be no standing still. There cannot be. Time goes slowly, yet surely from birth to the age of manhood. In like manner, our minds, though slowly formed to love Christ, must still be forming. It is when men are mature in years and yet are children in understanding that they are intolerable because they have exceeded their season and are out of place. Then it is that ambitious thoughts, trifling pursuits and amusements, passionate wishes and keen hopes and the love of display are directly sinful because they are by that time deliberate sins. While they were children, they spoke as children, understood, thought as children. But when they became men, it was high time to wake out of sleep and put away childish things. And if they have continued children, instead of having their senses exercised to discriminate between the excellent and the base, alas, what deep repentance must be theirs before they can know what true peace is, what self-reproach and sharp self-discipline, before their eyes can be opened to see effectually those truths which are spiritually discerned. So much on the case of those who neglect to grow betimes into the hope of their calling. As to the young themselves, it is plain that nothing I have said can give encouragement to them to acquiesce in their present incomplete devotion of themselves to God, because it will be as much as they can do, even with their best efforts, to make their growth of wisdom and of stature keep pace with each other. And if there be anyone who, as thinking the enjoyments of youth must soon be relinquished, deliberately resolves to make the most of them before the duties of manhood come upon him, such a one in doing so is rendering it impossible for him to give them up when he's called to do so. As for those who allow themselves in what even in youth is clearly sinful, the deliberate neglect of prayer, profaneness, riotous living, or other immorality, the case of such persons has not even entered into my mind when I spoke of youthful thoughtlessness. They, of course, have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. But if there be those among us, and such there well may be, who like the young ruler, worshipping Christ and loved by him, and obeying his commandments from their youth up, yet cannot but be sorrowful at the thought of giving up their pleasant visions, their childish idolatries, and their bright hopes of earthly happiness, such, I bid, be of good cheer and take courage. What is it your Savior requires of you, more than will also be exacted from you by that hard and evil master who desires your ruin. Christ bids you give up the world, but will not at any rate the world soon give you up? Can you keep it by being its slave? Will not he whose creature of temptation it is, the prince of the world, take it from you, whatever he at present promises? What does your Lord require of you but to look at all things as they really are? To account them merely as his instruments and to believe that good is good because he wills it. That he can bless as easily, 
by hard stone as by bread, in the desert as in the fruitful field. If we have faith in him who gives us the true bread from heaven. Daniel and his friends were princes of the royal house of David. They were, as Daniel says, children well-favored and skillful in all wisdom, cunning in knowledge and understanding science. Yet they had faith to refuse even the literal meat and drink given them because it was an idol sacrifice. And God sustained them without it. For ten days of trial, they lived on pulse and water. Yet at the end, says the sacred record, their countenances appeared fairer and fatter in flesh than all the children who did eat the portion of the king's meat. Do not doubt then his power to bring you through any difficulties who gives you the command to encounter them. He has showed you the way. He gave up the home of his mother Mary to be about his father's business. And now he bids you to take up after him the cross which he bore for you and fill up what is wanting of his afflictions in your flesh. Be not afraid. He is most gracious and will bring you on little by little. He does not show you where he is leading you. You might be frightened did you see the whole prospect at once. Sufficient for the day is its own evil. Follow his plan. Look not on anxiously. Look down at your present footing, lest it be turned out of the way. But speculate not about the future. I can well believe that you have hopes now which you cannot give up, and even which support you at your present course. So be it, whether they will be fulfilled or not is in his hand. He may be pleased to grant you the desires of your heart. If so, thank him for his mercy. Only be sure that all will be for your highest good, and in the words of Holy Scripture, as thy days, so shall thy strength be. There is none like unto the God of Jeshurun, who rideth upon the heaven in thy help, and in his excellency on the sky. The eternal God is thy refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. He knows no variableness, neither shadow of turning. And when we outgrow our childhood, we but approach, however feebly, to his likeness, who has no youth nor age, who has no passions, no hopes, no fears, but who loves truth, purity, and mercy, and who is supremely blessed because he is supremely holy. Lastly, while we thus think of him, let us not forget to be up and doing. Let us beware of indulging a mere barren faith and love which dreams instead of working and is fastidious when it should be hardy. This is only spiritual childhood in another form. For the Holy Ghost is the author of active good works and leads us to the observance of all lowly deeds of ordinary obedience as the most pleasing sacrifice to God.